Welcome to Drucker on the Dial, a show on leadership and management where timely issues meet timeless principles. Produced by the Drucker Institute at Claremont Graduate University. I'm your host, Palana Tiller. Today on Drucker on the Dial, I'll be talking with several guests about the unique challenges of managing creativity, as well as the role that creativity plays in effectively managing organizations. My guests include Tim Brown of IDEO, author David Berkus, Mattel executive Grace MacArthur, and Professor Bernie Jaworski of the Drucker School of Management. Finally, we'll round out the show with a great clip from comic actor John Cleese on how to make more room for creativity in our lives. As always, my guests' insights will be illuminated by the teachings of the late Peter Drucker, the author of 39 books and advisor to countless corporations, nonprofit groups, and government agencies. Peter Drucker, the man Businessweek said invented management. My first guest is Tim Brown, the CEO of the global design and innovation consultancy, IDEO. An industrial designer by training, Brown has earned numerous awards in his field and has exhibited work in such respected institutions as the Design Museum in London and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Brown, who has appeared before on Drucker on the Dial, takes special interest in the convergence of technology and the arts and frequently speaks about the value of design thinking and innovation to business people and designers around the world. Peter Drucker, whose thinking Brown holds in the highest regard, had a somewhat cautious view of creativity. He certainly believed that constantly creating the new was essential for organizations, famously teaching, in fact, that innovation, along with marketing, is one of the two basic functions of a business. But he worried that executives often pursue quote-unquote creativity at the expense of actually carrying out the rigorous management practices necessary to create tomorrow, beginning with systematically abandoning that which has become obsolete. When that happens, Drucker wrote in Toward the Next Economics, creativity becomes largely an excuse for doing nothing. The organization which systematically sloughs off yesterday need not worry about creativity, Drucker added. It will have such a healthy appetite for the new that the main task of management will be to select from among the large number of good ideas. I started off my interview with Brown by asking him to humor me a little with a basic discussion about what creativity is, before we went on to tackle bigger questions about the role and value of creativity in individual and organizational functioning and performance. Creativity is is essentially the the natural ability that people have to uh, have new ideas, new ways of doing things. Now, I I think that, that what Actually, uh, great creative people have is what I would call creative confidence. So they don't only have the natural ability to have new ideas, they actually have the courage to act on them. Mm -hmm. You actually lead me to my next question, which is about the phrase creative confidence. I know your colleagues at IDEO, Tom and David Kelly, recently published a book called Creative Confidence. Um, Would you just walk our audience through what you mean or what they mean when you, and what you're thinking about when you use the phrase creative confidence and, and why is it important and who needs it? Well, we can think about uh, creative confidence really as a mindset. Right? I mean, the way we, we, we approach the world as people through different frames uh, and uh, creative confidence is one way to approach the world and a necessary way to approach the world, I believe, that if you want to be innovative, if you want to be creative, if you want to have new ideas, and so we can think about almost the relationship between um, the mindset of creative confidence and the tool set that one might use to, to kind of act on that mindset. So I, as a designer, I use the tools of design thinking to act, uh, to, you know, to, to usefully act on my creative confidence. Right? Mm-hmm. I know how to come up with new ideas and, and visualize them and build them and make them happen in the world. A musician might 
create music and uh, uh, with a creative mindset, and then and then use an instrument, a piano or whatever it is, to act on that mm-hmm. on, on that composition and, and make it happen in the, happen in the world. So depending, and a dancer might do it differently, or a fine artist might do it differently. So depending on your um, uh, the way that you kind of physically act in the world, you might use a different tool set. But what all of us need is, is creative confidence to have those ideas in the first place. It's the courage. Like you, you mentioned the word courage earlier, the yeah. courage to kind of take action around that spark or that thought or that initial initial idea. It, it, exactly, exactly. Because it's, it's, it's all too easy for ideas just to exist in our heads. And they unfortunately don't have a lot of impact in the world for the most part. I mean, clearly there are ideas that can act as means that can, uh, that can make a difference in the world. But for the most part, ideas tend to have, uh, create impact when when they're acted upon, when something when something happens, and that often requires skills, right? That often requires um, hard work. It mm-hmm. often requires resources, which is well, you know, one of the things that, that people are fearful of. Yeah. Uh, you know, in general, um, uh, kind of my perspective would be that that it's sort of fear that holds back uh, that confidence, right? Mm-hmm. It's a fear of failure, mm-hmm. um, or it's a fear that you don't have the right skills, or it's a fear that you, fear that you're going to look foolish when you try something new and people aren't ready to accept something new. And so, so much of creative confidence is actually about overcoming fear. Although Peter Drucker didn't use the term creative confidence, he certainly saw it lacking inside many organizations, especially among those at the top. Professional management, Drucker wrote, today sees itself in the role of a judge who says yes or no to ideas as they come up. This leads inevitably to the famous jingle, which legend has it was found one day pinned to the organization chart on the bulletin board of the Unilever Company in London. Across this tree, from root to crown, ideas flow up and vetoes down. With this in mind, I asked Brown to help me explore why it is that individuals and organizations become so fearful of taking action based on unexpected or unconventional ideas. Well, a lot of it's conditioning. Right? I mean, a lot of it's conditioning that happens when we're quite young. Um, the conditioning that happens when we go to when we go into the education system, which focuses almost entirely on on other mindsets, right, and, and not on the creative mindset, which which tends to you know literally uh, uh, force us to come up with the right answer instead of coming up with a new answer, that forces to color inside the lines mm-hmm. instead of uh, drawing all over the page, which uh, which one might not wish to do if one was being creative. So. So I, I, unfortunately, a lot of that conditioning come, comes comes quite early on in the school system. I mean, every kid, almost every kid, unless they've had really unfortunate uh, parenting exper- uh, experiences, um, when they go to kindergarten, will be creative. They're open-minded, they're experimental, they're avid learners, um, and yet somehow we see, we seem to we seem to condition them as they as they go through school to to reject. Much of that uh, that creative confidence. Some of it is actually developmental, uh, from what I understand. Anyway, I'm certainly not a neuroscientist or a psychologist, but mm-hmm. but from what I understand, as we get more conscious, as we get into our sort of teenage years of of, of peers, of the social group, um, then some of that fear of being creative actually um, comes from that development. Right, we're much more conscious of sure. what our peers think and where we sit within the peer group, mm-hmm. and so if if, if being creative actually is risky in terms of where you are within a within a, within a peer group, then uh, then 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 that that's obviously going to negatively affect one's one's creative confidence. And so it means we need to create, I think, we need to create kind of social context, sort of social structures 
um, for teenagers, but give them a chance to continue to experiment and continue to take risks yeah. without worrying about the impact that that will have on their social standing. Mm-hmm. And what do you think happens then on the kind of organizational side, where you see oftentimes, you know, a company is started through an entrepreneurial spark or uh, an organization, a nonprofit is founded through identifying a particular need, but then perhaps as this entity matures, there's some kind of atrophying that reduces the amount of creativity or innovation or ingenuity that goes into the, the management and the, and the maintenance of this entity. What do you think leads to that kind of thing? Well, I think you could, you, one might suggest it's actually the same phenomenon that's happening as, as happens in education in the sense that it's focused on optimization. Mm-hmm. Right? That, I mean, the, the education system we have today is essentially an industrial education system. Right? It's focused on um, uh, the optimal production of, pe- of, 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 of outcomes of students that have a certain kind of standard of, uh, of capability around literacy and numeracy and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's heavily optimized and it doesn't leave a lot of space for doing interesting things. Well, the same is true of many of our, most of our businesses, right? Our businesses spend most of their time, certainly once they reach scale, on optimization, mm-hmm. on continuing to kind of do the same thing today that we did yesterday. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, unfortunately, and I think we probably talked about this last time, um, you know, in a world that's more and more complex and more and more volatile, that's a less and less successful strategy. Sure. Right? And so uh, and, and so organizations have conditioned themselves and conditioned the people that work inside them to, to focus on optimization, to narrow down options, to discourage creative confidence, if you will, just at a time when we need to encourage it in order to in order to um, uh, be as adaptable and, 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 and agile uh, as we need to be. I next asked Brown to consider why the space for creative exploration is sometimes perceived to be disorderly or unstructured and whether that notion might stymie opportunities for discovery and innovation. I, you know, I, I think that if you sat with a prolific composer and uh, observed them, you would not see unstructured, undisciplined, uh, kind of um, purposeless uh, <laughs> creation going on. Right? Sure, you, often, sure. you often see extreme rigor and lots of process lots of building on the ideas of others, for instance. I mean, you know, I think it was Picasso that uh, talked about great artists' uh, steel, right? yes. that, they, mm-hmm. that they build on other people's ideas. You know, Leonardo's sketchbooks mm-hmm. were full of drawings of other people's ideas mm-hmm. as well as his own. And so I think creativity is structured. I think creativity is disciplined. I think it's the sort of, if you like, maybe it's the front end. And as I say, it's less a process as it more as a state of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that state of mind is one that is one that's actually quite disciplined, that's a, that, that requires a lot of hard work. It sometimes requires freeing the mind of assumptions, freeing the mind of distractions, mm-hmm. uh, which might mean that you know sitting in a meeting is not the best place to be uh, creative. Maybe not even sitting in your office yeah. is not the best place to be creative. But I, that that doesn't make it any less methodological or any less purposeful. It's mm-hmm. just it's just about one needs to understand the best context um, to get one's brain to work in certain kinds of ways. So much of creativity is about making unexpected connections, mm-hmm. and our brains are very very good at that if we give them the opportunity to to to, to do it. And multiple brains can be even better at it if we give them the opportunity to do it. Right. And the space to do it. I read a piece you recently wrote about daydreaming, um, right? And, and and sort of the value for that space and how constructive that can actually be. Yeah, and again, that's. I mean, it's, it's, I mean the, the, the problem is, of course, that, you know, we have these connotations of daydreaming is purposeless, <laughs> but, uh, but but in, in fact, it's, it, it's it's more about the 
opening up the space. I mean, I mean, so much of uh, creative leadership, in fact, is about creating the space for people to be productive, to be creative, to be innovative. Mm-hmm. And, 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 that's, uh, and one can think about that on, on a personal level, too. If you want your own brain to be creative, to be insightful, to make connections that it hasn't had a chance to make, then you need to create space for it to do that. And if it's full of distraction, then it's unlikely that it will be able to do it. In the same way that if in an organization you cram every minute of every day with, uh, with, with processes that are intended to optimize or meetings or whatever you want to, whatever, however you want to describe it, then it's unlikely teams are going to be uh, creative and productive. I mean, you know, we found that if you take an innovation team, for instance, and ask it to spend um, slice its time up uh, and spend lots of time doing other distracting things as well as working on its project, it's far less effective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, than giving the team a chance to actually dive in and really focus. I recently spoke with an HR executive at, uh, at a leading global toy company, and she described one of the challenges that she has um, with, with uh, staffers at that company who see themselves as definitively creative um, being really reticent to take on what they consider managerial roles or managerial tasks and how she's actually oftentimes confronted with a kind of an opposite challenge, which is how to um, imbue the quote unquote creative type with something that's maybe more like management confidence. Um, Do you think about that, that opposite challenge? Do you run into that? Is that something you're thinking about? And how are you, how would you address that? Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to scale any kind of creative organization, then you have to think you're bound to end up thinking about that. Um, you know, I, I you know, and and I think it's a you know it's a spectrum, right? You definitely get sure. some people that are sure. are so obsessed um, with with the you know with the creative act that they've got no interest in <laughs> in in, um, in sort of leadership skills or management skills, and and you've got others who who find it who find that in itself an interesting design challenge, and then. You know, I think for me, you know, somebody who started off at art school and as a designer, that what has interested me about leadership and, and leading an organization has been what that looks like is a design challenge in its own right. I mean, what does a creative organization look like? Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, in our world, what, what, you know, what is a beautiful organization? What's, what's an organization that meets the needs of its, uh, of its users, both, in, you know, both us as employees and our customers. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? That's a really fascinating design problem and therefore it's a creative problem. And so I, uh, I find that that's been my mechanism for, um, uh, that's kind of taken me along the journey of thinking about some of these management things. But I mean, having said that, you know, I mean, I find, I know one of the reasons I love Trucker's work so much is that he was a humanist, right? I mean, he was yeah. human-centered in the way he thought about things, mm-hmm. which is what I am as a, as a designer, I believe. And I find so much management writing is not that. It's system-centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think that if we force creative people to think about management from a sort of a system-centered point of view, from a non-human point of view, mm-hmm. from a non-emotional mm-hmm. point of view, then they will reject it because it's, it's, it's kind of the polar opposite from what they value. My next guest is David Barkas an assistant professor of management at Oral Roberts University and the author of the recent book, The Myths of Creativity. Berkus's book aims to shed light on the ways that innovative companies and people generate great ideas, a subject that also occupied a lot of Peter Drucker's thinking. One of Drucker's favorite subjects in this regard was Thomas Edison, who took a decidedly structured approach to his work. He always started out with a clear definition of the product desired, Drucker wrote of the great inventor. 
He then broke down the process into constituent parts and worked out their relationship and sequence. He set specific controls for key points, he laid down the standards, and so on. To be sure, Edison did not take out the creative spark, but he tried and successfully to give creativity a solid foundation in system and method. I began my interview with Berkus by asking him to walk me through what he hoped readers would take away from the book. You know, sometimes when you write a book, there are things that you come up with to explain the book after you finish the manuscript and you wish you thought of it sooner. <laughs> and uh, and, this, and this is one of them. The, the best reason I've come up with, or the best way of phrasing the reason, is that the stories we tell ourselves are true, even if they're not true. And, and what that turns into in creativity is there's a lot of stories we've told ourselves or we told our large organization that circulate throughout the organization about uh, us collectively or about other more creative companies. There's a lot of stories we tell ourselves. And the mere fact that we tell them that way shapes our worldview and sort of reinforces the story. And what I found is there's a lot of stories about creativity and innovation, both personally inside companies, that, that just aren't true. Either they're about what the most creative companies do or about an individual. And in, in a lot of cases, these stories are actually discounting the creative potential mm-hmm. of those people and of those companies. And, and that is something that really needs to be fixed. Yeah. I have a, actually a colleague here at the Institute who has more than once been the person who says, you know, I'm, I'm just not creative, or she might refer to others in the team as the creative types. And, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about um, what are some ways that someone who approaches this idea of creativity with a little hesitance or a little, you know, tends to shy away from it, that they're getting these historical messages about what it means to be creative. How would you um, respond to someone who's, who approaches creativity from that slightly fearful or uncomfortable place? Yeah, well, first I would take them back to kindergarten. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you walk into any kindergarten classroom in America, you'll have a room of, of, let's say, 25 kindergartners, and you ask them if they're creative, every single one of them will raise their hand. So at some point in that person's life, they were probably asked if they were creative or they thought of themselves as creative. Somewhere, though, between kindergarten and college, that room full of 25 students, by the end of it, maybe two of them will say they're creative, and, and both of those will be marketing majors, so they think that's <laughs> the right answer. Uh, and, and so the real question is, you know, when you say, I'm not creative, if I can get you to the place where you're admitting that it's not something that's in your genetics, it's not something that you, you were given or not given, well, what you really mean is that you're out of practice. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ask, are, are you willing to get back into practice? Are, are you willing to sort of give it a go and learn those techniques that you've kind of forgotten and, and almost relearn creativity and get back into the flow and back into the practice. And, and that's what I think most people need to do. I think most people like to discount almost the pressure to have to get back into practice is off if they can just believe that they aren't creative and never were. But unfortunately, every kindergarten classroom in America bears witness to the fact that you were. Right, right. Peter Drucker wrote a great deal, as you know, uh, about innovation. And, you know, this topic has kind of become the ubiquitous hot topic. And, and you know, we find that a lot of people overlap uh, innovation and creativity or how they think about those two things. And um, one of the one of the Drucker teachings that I often um, really like to pay attention to is the idea that companies that innovate successfully don't view inspiration as mysterious or elusive. His quote was that they don't get caught waiting around for the muse to kiss them and that most of creativity is just hard and systematic work. How do you communicate this idea of, of systems and processes um, to organizations and to bigger groups of people about kind of pivoting into, um, as you said, getting back into the practice of creativity? Well, what, I, what I start with as a premise, let, let's attack what, what sort of Drucker is attacking here, and let's address this issue of the muses sitting around and waiting. And a lot of times I'll show people the psychology of here, here's what's going on in your brain when you have a creative idea. There's a, a bunch of different factors that have come into alignment and kind of allotted your, your 
your capacity for creativity at that moment. You, you have some expertise on the problem. You have motivation to solve the problem. You have some creative thinking skills. And you're in a social environment that, that sort of supports that. And, and when you do, it becomes a process. And, oh, by the way, are you curious as to what the process is? And can you learn it? And can you be more comfortable with it? So I use a lot of stories in the book about the, the, more, the most creative companies, the most innovative people. And really what I focus on is here's the system that they were using. Mm-hmm. And here's also how that system is in line with what's going on inside your brain and what the psychological evidence points to. And that's depending on the myth that we're trying to address, there's a bunch of different systems to use. And that I think that's the next big sort of flaw of we begin to teach one practice of creativity, but in reality, there's so many different elements to it. We kind of, it's, it's like, I, like I've said before, it's a practice. It's a thing that becomes almost a part of your life, not just the process to go through. And you see that imbued into the most innovative companies. They don't see it as they're more creative or they're more innovative. They're just committed to living a system yeah. that continuously improves. I next asked Berkus to walk me through some of the myths that he addresses in the book, starting with the example of a fascinating nonprofit organization called FuseCore. The myth that I bring up FuseCore in is this myth that I call the expert myth, and it's sort of the idea that when we have these wicked problems, we should always go to the most researched person in, in the world and try and throw the problem at them. And as a result, we have these experts and thought leaders who are constantly making predict- predictions, right? In every U.S. election cycle, at least, shows you kind of just how not all that worth it those predictions tend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, a lot of interesting predictions come from people who are at the fringes. People, to use the, the elections metaphor, people like a Nate Silver who have a new idea for predicting. And the reason they're able to kind of look at the problem differently is because their expertise comes from a variety of fields and they're using their, that expertise isn't being used to discount the wild ideas they have. They're willing to sort of try it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so what FuseCore does is it addresses an, an area of, uh, of our system that is probably ripe for people who are not experts. And, and what I mean by that is government. You know, uh, government, there's a lot of people who spend their career in civil service, and that's, and that's wonderful. But what FuseCore is trying to do is trying to, to put the people who are in civil service to almost be what they call tri-sector athletes, mm-hmm. people who are in the nonprofit sector for a little while, in the for-profit sector for a little while, in the public sector for a little while. And as a result, they have a much broader perspective with which to look at these where wicked problems from. And so what FuseCore does is they find mid-career professionals, people about eight to 10 years of experience, and they offer them a one-year fellowship into a, a city or a state-level government to cover sort of a mission-critical project that is either sort of slowing down or can't break through the inertia or just doesn't have the immediate funding right now and FuseCore can kind of give an injection of innovation into that organization. I, I think it's... Um, Really, to be honest with you, I think it's right in line with some of Drucker's later work where as he shifted from talking about businesses to talking about nonprofit that's right. and talking about how all organizations should sort of work. It's really something that's in, in heart with where he was really thinking about, hey, we need to apply these principles, these techniques across the board. We need innovation everywhere, not just in companies. That's right. Right. Tell, tell our audience a little bit more, if you would, then, about the other myths that you explore. Yeah. So one of, the, I think, the most dangerous myths of creativity is, is this one that I end the book with. It's called the mousetrap myth in, in my book. And essentially, it, it stems from this saying that if you build a better mousetrap, the world will be a path to your door. Right? And what that suggests is that if you, just ha- if you just innovate, if you just have a great idea, you will naturally become the market leader. And, and the truth is that that's not true at all. Great ideas get rejected all the time, both by the market, but also inside organizations, especially inside of organizations. You can have someone on the front or the middle lines, and they, they bring an idea of the organization it ends up getting rejected at some level, right? It has to go through all of these different levels of a hierarchy to get accepted. Mm-hmm. But if just one rejection happens, the whole idea is killed. And, and we think that 
that's okay because we're really good judges of new ideas. But the truth is that we have this hidden bias against new and creative ideas. So for an idea to be creative, it has to be new and it has to be useful. And that useful is actually really, really difficult to see in something that's new because we're using old methods, old principles, old guidelines for judging whether or not it's useful. So reconciling those two things is really hard. And in hierarchies, that leads to what a friend of mine calls a hierarchy of no, <laughs> because it just takes one no to get a good idea killed. Right. In the market, I think that's even worse. There's a lot of times where we think through the innovation side, we think through the, the creativity side, we, we put out a product that is just light years forward. But if we don't think about how the market is going to have a hidden bias against it, if we don't think about that sort of diffusion of innovation curve and what we're going to do to overcome that, we can end up with a market failure. And this is where, again, I think Drucker had a great line where he talked about how all businesses need to be focused on innovation and marketing. Mm -hmm. The innovation side is great, but we also need to let the world know that we have a better mousetrap in order for them to be the path to the door. Right, right. And, and what might be another uh, of your myths that you highlight in the book? So one of the other ones I think is really interesting that not a lot of people see is the role of conflict in organizations. There's a, a myth called the cohesive myth. And what this essentially says is that when we look at sort of greener pasture companies, companies we think as pinnacles of creativity or innovation, we, we start to picture them like your, your sort of Silicon Valley startup, right? Mm -hmm. There's crazy art on the walls. It's an open workspace. There's, there's free food everywhere. <laughs> it's not casual Friday. It's casual every day. And we think, wow, there, there couldn't possibly be conflict in that company. It must be a wonderful, happy, you know, utopian place to work. Mm -hmm. The truth is that the most creative companies, uh, in, in, at least in the U.S., if not the world, actually structure conflict into their creative process. So if you think of a company like Pixar, right? Pixar makes children's films. It must be a wonderful, lovely, happy place to work. Mm -hmm. they, have, they have conflict at every level of their process. They actually regularly show a film in progress to anyone in the theater who wants to see it and encourage them encourage any staff member of Pixar to come and watch the film and shred it apart and criticize it. But you can criticize it, but you also have to be adding a plus. And that plus is any suggestion you have for overcoming that criticism. And what, what that, they call it plusing. Mm -hmm. What that allows the person who's getting the critique to do is not devolve into a personal conflict, not take it personally, and not even walk away with a list of criticisms and conflict, but to walk away with a, a list of ideas. And so they're using conflict to even generate more ideas. And I think it's a wonderful use of what is called task-focused conflict. And there's a lot of research that supports the idea that when coming up with ideas and making ideas better, task-focused conflict can actually enhance the overall quality of the ideas generated. Burgess and I then discussed a topic that Tim Brown had also touched upon, the natural tension between the need for focus and the need for open space and time when pursuing creativity. So I, I think it's a matter of, of structuring time properly, right? And we, we've all had moments in our life where we need to sit down and really kind of crank something out. We know what the solution already is. We know how it's going to be structured out. And we just need to sort of, as a lot of writers refer to it, butt in seat and start typing, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other times where we need ideas. And that's where being so focused on something can actually sort of harm you. There's a lot to the idea of being able to see the ideas that are on the periphery. And if you're so focused, this sort of is a tangential to the um, expert myth. If yeah. you're so focused in on just that one thing, you're going to miss what's on the periphery. And so what a lot of uh, design and design thinking friends of mine try and do is cultivate in themselves and the people they work with uh, sort of being what they call T-shaped. The, the idea is to be have a deep knowledge in what you're working on, which is like the uh, vertical line in a, in a capital letter T, but mm -hmm. also to have a broad sort of sense of what's going on around you, have a broad range of experiences, which is like the horizontal line. And that way you could pull things from the periphery 
and bring them in. In practical life, I encourage people to sort of take the dive into P-shaped by just reading stuff that's outside of their field. Walk into a a bookstore, if you can find a bookstore, walk into a bookstore and go to the back wall where all the magazines are and grab four or five magazines that aren't related to your business industry or maybe aren't even business related mm-hmm. and just read through and see what comes up. If you're looking for ideas, the periphery is a great place to start. Yeah. What are some other uh, tips or recommendations that you would um, offer for an organization or, or an individual beyond this, this great suggestion of the, the you know, T-shaping through uh, bookstores? <laughs> um, what are some other ways that you would, that you'd sort of, how would you nudge someone to, to kind of think about um, expanding their own capacity for just fostering creativity and creative possibility? I think one of the most interesting things that I see some organizations doing is hiring people they don't need yet. And what I mean by that is looking at how can we bring either fully into the organization and give them a job or at least begin to build a relationship with people who are in the edges of places we might be experimenting, thinking about or who we might even seem sort of totally unrelated. And, and how can we sort of bring them in? I think there's an interesting trend right now, one of the hotter career fields, believe it or not, is ethnography, as in the study of cultures and how cultures are interacting and and how do you sort of see those things, because we're learning that traditional market research techniques are not enough to really understand what consumers are going to want. It's not enough to see their response. We need to see what is the unspoken need, and to do that, we need to watch their behaviors, watch their actions, and get a sense of that. And that that started in the industrial design community with places like IDEO and Continuum, but now it's sort of spilled over into a lot of large-scale organizations that are looking to innovate faster are looking to, what are these sort of jobs that have skill sets we can bring in? If you can't hire people, I mean, you know, a lot of businesses aren't, can't just hire people willy-nilly, especially <laughs> in kind of our current economic state. That still doesn't mean you can't have conversations with them. You can't bring people in that you don't, you don't necessarily know how they're related to your business now. My next guest is Bernie Jaworski, who holds the Peter F. Drucker Chair in Management and the Liberal Arts at the Peter F. Drucker and Masatoshi Ito Graduate School of Management here at Claremont Graduate University. The Drucker School is the sister institution to my own organization, the Drucker Institute. The Drucker Chair recognizes an internationally respected scholar who's carrying on the Drucker legacy of tempering sound business practices with a commitment to social responsibility. Jaworski's career in academia was preceded by a decade as a senior partner of the Monitor Group, a global management consulting firm. One of Jaworski's current initiatives at the Drucker School involves engaging with companies that are part of the so-called creative economy, movie studios, digital production houses, design firms, and so on. I kicked off my interview with Jaworski by asking him about the use of the phrase management and the liberal arts in the title of the Drucker chair he holds. Peter Drucker had a deep belief that management was a liberal art. And by that he meant that you needed to look at the nature of organization and management from the lens of multiple disciplines, psychology, mm-hmm. sociology, anthropology. And only when you really richly understood it from that multidisciplinary perspective could you actually begin to understand how organizations operate, how to make them more efficient, and how organizations fit more generally in society. Um, so um, it's interesting because you would think that these two these terms are actually don't fit together in some way, shape, or form, but they're essential, actually, for Peter Drucker's work and really essential for how it is that, that our school functions. Mm-hmm. I know that one of your current projects there, the Drucker School, is around managing in the creative industries. Would you tell us about that? What are you working on and who are you working with and what are the goals of that project? You know, we're uniquely situated here in Southern California where there is the entertainment uh, industry and a lot of other uh, industries that are categorized as in the creative sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a number of different things that relate to the creative sector, but I think the headlines would be 
they're typically organizations that are that are based upon significant intellectual capital. Mm -hmm. They're typically industries that run off the blockbusters. They're typically industries that have very creative folks inside of them that are coming up with the new discoveries, uh, and the new toys, the new movies, the new films. And then there's a business side that mm -hmm. actually runs the organization. So there are a number of challenges to running these organizations. And I think what the, the reason that, that we're stepping in and being very aggressive about thinking about intellectual capital, coursework, executive education in the space is that we think there's, a, in a sense, a niche for us to play in this particular sector. And it has to do not only with the geography of Southern California, but also with the heritage, intellectual heritage of the school. So, for example, one of Peter Drucker's key terms is, is the notion of knowledge worker and the mm -hmm. idea that, you know, the worker gets to leave, you know, the office each day. And if you think about creative industries, I mean, that's really, it's basically built upon knowledge workers. So there are assets of the school that we're applying to the sector, mm -hmm. and there's the geographic rationale for why we're entering into it. Uh, so that, those are some of the key reasons as, as to why we're pursuing this particular sector. What are some, some great stories that you run into around companies or maybe people who've come to you with a question or a problem they're having due to the tension between the creative kind of intellectual capital part of their company and the business needs of that company? Are there some, some challenges that you've kind of observed where you've been able to push people through to some kind of discovery or yeah. kind of unleash them? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that let, let, me, let me start with the standard uh, proposition and then, then I'll challenge it. Mm -hmm. The standard proposition is that if you look at an organization like a Mattel or a Disney or Sony, they have people that are very creative, that sit you know, on the side of the organization that helps design these new-to-the-world offerings, and that these people need enormous flexibility. It's not like you say to them on Friday at 3 p.m., be really creative and smart. You want the next American <laughs> girl to kind of materialize. You just don't see that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the other side of the ledger is people think the business side of, of Mattel is going to be run by folks that, you know, <laughs> that are sitting in the back office with white shirts and ties and running spreadsheets and have no creativity at all. And they're basically there to kind of run the machine and hammer the folks on the, on the creative side. And, and the reality is it's, it's, it's both of these sides of the organization need to, quote, be creative. Mm -hmm. And both of these sides of the organization need to understand the underlying business logic and the business model of the organization in order for the organization to run smoothly. So curiously enough, even though the conventional wisdom is these are two different cultures, two different audiences, and the big challenge in running the company is to mesh these together, the reality is that for organizations that run well, they actually are already ahead of that and saying, geez, these populations actually are not that disparate. And mm -hmm. actually, you know, one of the real challenges is how to make the – business side more creative and the creative side more business-like in order to kind of make sure the, the, you know, the organization is functioning on all cylinders. Yeah. I think there's probably uh, some sort of a presumption, too, that, that companies that are within the creative sector are just innately innovative. Do you guys talk about that, too? Like, how do you, how do you talk to a company that um, maybe sees itself already as falling within the creative set or the innovative set about bec becoming more systematic and kind of taking in some of Drucker's teachings around you know, innovation being something that, that happens in many different ways and many different degrees within an organization to be effective. I mean, I think one of the fascinating things that Drucker's work is he said, listen, innovation, innovation is sort of the lifeblood of organizations. You know, innovation and marketing are kind of two cornerstones for how it is that you drive, you know, an organization, two most important functions that, that are unfolding mm -hmm. in an organization. And on the innovation side, I think what Drucker was very keen to point out is that oftentimes we think of innovation as, you know, you say we, we have to innovate. We have to have our R&D innovate. And, mm -hmm. you know, and what happens then is that, organizations innovate around products and services. 
But the reality, and Drucker saw this, you know, you know, half century ago, is that it's not just about the products and services of where you innovate. It's anything related to the business itself, how it is that you finance the nature of the offerings, how it is that you organize the internal business processes, how it is that you manage the brand, how it is that you manage the channel relationships. So in a sense, the entire business system is where it is that innovation should be unfolding. So it's not just at the interface of this product service with a customer or firm. It's actually the full suite of things that a firm needs to do to, quote, innovate in order to stay ahead of where the market's moving. Mm-hmm. Are you finding that there's any um, resistance to some of the ideas that you bring from the management side or the Drucker's principles? Do you find people, when you interact with them in the creative industries, are taken back at all by this idea of becoming more aware of, of how to manage more effectively inside of their industries? No, I think, I think what I've been pleasantly surprised by is people are very happy that we're stepping into the territory and we're trying to address exactly some of the issues that are industry-specific. And I, by industry, I mean you know, various authors have said the creative industries represents 10 or 15 industries. Sure. You know, so entertainment, film, uh, the creative arts, you know, there's many different ways to categorize it. But I think what I, what I found is people say they have a sense that there is something different and unique about their industry, and there's unique ways to think about how the firm competes in the marketplace, about how to design offerings, about where revenue models are emerging and so forth. So, you know, one of the interesting classes we teach is now uh, called strategy in the creative industries. Mm -hmm. And we teach, you know, interesting sets of materials. You know, for example, Lady Gaga is one of the cases that we teach. (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of fun. It's interesting. The students really enjoy it. But, you know, there's serious, you know, business issues and organizational issues and management issues that are all surfacing around that. And how do you monetize various things, the nature of shifting revenue streams for Lady Gaga that's moving away from digital music to, you know, live performances and so forth. So I think people enjoy the fact we're stepping in and saying we've we've studied the sector of the economy. We know something about it. We're trying to codify the knowledge. We're trying to disseminate that. And I've been, you know, really pleasantly surprised when I'm interacting with folks in the community, the business community, in the management community, and in the arts community, that they're, you know, they're, they're very pleased that we're sort of moving in this particular direction. Because I don't think anybody's bet, you know, as heavily as we are to try and understand and codify the knowledge that one needs to be more successful in this particular sector. My next guest is Grace MacArthur, Vice President of Human Resources and Leadership Development at the giant toy maker Mattel. MacArthur's office provides HR support to Mattel employees responsible for designing, developing, marketing, and selling some of the world's best-known toys and games, including Barbie, Polly Pocket, Hot Wheels, and Matchbox. I asked MacArthur, who's part of a network engaged with Bernie Jaworski at the Drucker School, to describe the intersection between management and creativity at a company like Mattel. Well, I think that... um you know, um, you have a wide um, array of different functional skills within the creative industries, um, um, but, um, you know, you have your normal um, staff functions, um, finance, um, HR, operations, etc. But you also have marketing and design. And um, within our industry, um, our design function is kind of the lifeblood of the, of the industry. Mm-hmm. And they do have to be... Um, um, really handled and treated in, in a slightly different way from the rest of the organization. Um, they are motivated differently um, and they, um, you know, really respond differently um, to a lot of the normal processes you might use around management. Um, they really have, um, you know, a very different um, way of responding to them. So you have to take account of that. 
Sure. And what might be some ways that you, from an HR standpoint, then go about proactively um, creating or fostering greater space for that creativity or that idea generation that that, that set needs to have uh, within a context that's still a business? Yeah, so uh, for instance, we have a, a creative technical ladder. I would say we one of the things that we um, you know find a you know basically uh, a challenge in some ways is that uh, we have fantastic creative talent, but not many of them really get their um, intrinsic sort of rewards from managing others. Mm-hmm. They really are very much um, individual contributors, and they very much in, enjoy um, kind of working on their creative art. Um, they therefore, you know, actually identifying individuals who are willing to step away from that and become more leaders um, of a group and really um, become managers and be a little bit more business focused is actually quite a challenge uh, within our our, our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, therefore, we have a creative technical ladder. We allow our our creators to move up. Um, to similar levels um, as as if they were within management, um, in terms of um, you know obviously salary levels etc within the organisation, but we um, you know we really value it when we find that creative leader who can still be creative and inspirational uh, to others around them, but also is willing to take on the management of others and kind of a, and take on a broader business role for us. So that's really critical. So. Um, that's kind of some of the, you know, some of the ways we look at it is to try and motivate and uh, continue to move people along in their careers and give them opportunities to be promoted, to move up in the organization without actually having to manage others. So that's something that's very specific to the creative functions within our, within our company. Sure. And what do you think are some of the opportunities that might um, arise from a partnership like the one uh, with the Drucker School of Management? Are you finding that, that you know, there are, there are people there who perhaps have an innate willingness to, to learn management skills and you're, you now have an outlet or, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you hope to see come of that um, partnership? Yes, I think that, um, you know, I do think that when we're talking about um, trying to encourage creatives to understand that they can still, um, you know, find value in um, managing creative talent or, or still find uh, rewards, intrinsic rewards within themselves through the management um, of others who, who are creatives, uh, but not necessarily apply that creative skill directly themselves. So it's certainly a, uh, it's certainly a challenge. Um, for instance, one of the things we introduced um, in the last couple of years here, specifically for our design um, um, talent, was the concept of sabbaticals um, mm. so that individuals could um, take time out um, and and these were take time out to do really whatever they want to take a three month period off um, from the organization away from the company they were they were we were happy for them to work on pretty much anything they wanted mm-hmm. um, as long as they when they came back they could bring those learnings and the inspiration and uh, you know, the refreshed um, kind of sense of creativity and energy back to the organization and, and you know, allow that to kind of um, help the rest of the, uh, the creative function um, really be, become more inspired and energized by, by allowing, you know, our talent to leave and come back. Mm-hmm. That's specifically just for our design talent. We don't do that for any other function. Uh-huh. Um, so some of the other functions will look over and kind of think, well, that's you know why don't we get the opportunity to do that as well? But but we do think we do think uh, those individuals um, 
um, really in some ways have to be given those opportunities but also have to be protected to some degree from the uh, the hustle and bustle of everyday corporate life. Um, so, I'm just curious, do you think that um, there'd be any value to ever considering people in other functions to do that sort of sabbatical or that, uh, that, that sort of field trip experience, maybe a, a shorter period, but do, would you ever imagine a time where that might be an interesting thing to do in terms of bringing in outside ideas? Yes, absolutely. Um, we absolutely think it would be terrific thing to do for, for many of our functions, but but we really feel um, um, with the kind of focus we have on, you know, increasingly within within any an organization today, you have um, significant cost pressures. You have, um, you know, pretty lean organizations. So it's very hard to, to kind of, uh, it's, it's interesting because the rest of the organization look over and see that the design folks have this and they kind of understand it as well. Sure, so there's a, there is a definite there's a definite understanding that design needs those sorts of opportunities, um, and um, and they're willing, you know, they're willing to say, yeah, they're different and they need this, and, sure. and, and they're the lifeblood, and therefore we should be doing this for them. MacArthur also shared some of the ways that she and her company seek to provide opportunities for employees to engage in creative problem solving, even if their specific function is not typically considered to be in a creative field. Well, we do. We actually do focus quite a lot as well on. I mean, the rest of our functions in terms of giving them um, fairly creative um, and uh, different development opportunities. Uh, for instance, we we run what I call a series of strategic leadership programs, which uh, which are really open to all of our staff at a certain level and above. I mean, these are invitation programs only, mm-hmm. but uh, where we put them through, for instance, an innovation simulation, mm. um, uh, an innovation business simulation, so they can really understand um, what it takes to kind of um, not only manage your business so that you're um, you know, uh, meeting the bottom line um, mm-hmm. every year and, and taking account of, you know, um, what you need to do from from a growing the business perspective, but also how, what does it look like when you take risks across your portfolio and where you do kind of place some small bets to grow your business in areas that you're not involved in currently. So it's kind of a it's a safe business simu- business innovation simulation. Mm-hmm. So we do take people through that. We also have um, had various programs where we bought, brought in a number of different um, types of um, you know thinkers and speakers from corporate poets to um, futurists to um, architects to you know um, you know quite quite a, you know a number of um, thought-provoking outside um, uh, stimulus for our organisation because we believe we're a creative company sure. so regardless of of what organisation you you work in you, you have to be willing to kind of um, you know, really understand what the core of our business is, and that's the creative. Sure, yeah. If you could take a, a sabbatical of your own, I know you've worked in, in, in several different industries. Um, you've worked in the petrochemical industry. You've now worked uh, here in, the, in this creative industry. Um, if there was something that you could do as an HR executive to, to go kind of explore in a different area, is there something that you might do for yourself just as a, a learner to bring back to your practice? Um, yes, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, having opportunities to, for instance, go to something like the TED Global Conference, for instance, would be terrific. So mm-hmm. that sort of stimulus around different thinking, different ways, I mean, from, an, from a, a wide variety of, uh, you know, of, of different perspectives, not just creative, but, um, 
you know, just a really different thinking about um, whatever the topic of the day is, whether it's neuroscience or whatever. It's really kind of being able to bring back to the organization um, a broader perspective from the outside. So, as I say, if I could take a week off and go to TED Global, that would be terrific um, <laughs> as, an, as an example. Yeah. Um, but uh, actually, I think retreats as well are very interesting, you know, being, allowing, your, allowing individuals to be more introspective, because I think that's something we, we, that you don't really get a lot of in organizations mm-hmm. nowadays. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we talk about is maybe brainstorming sessions are not really the way to go anymore. Perhaps it's more important to have people to think quietly by themselves mm. and then come back with kind of um, key input after a period of reflection. Yeah. So um, in, in all honesty, I think that the speed um, that organizations work at today and uh, you know it's 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 an incredibly intense environment to be in so the chance to actually stop and really think uh, and reflect that's not something that happens very much in organizations sure. I think in the creative world that's why when I look over at our design organization um, you know, we understand they need that, yeah, but all sure. the rest of the organization needs it too. <laughs> and uh, and I don't think they get the chance really to to, to have that. Uh, you're always on to the next thing. It's everything is everything is in you know um, you know incredibly short um, uh, time frames sure. and, and very intense and very pressurized. And even if you're a growing organization, and even if the economy has improved, there's there's still a significant focus on cost. Sure. Um, and I think that um, as I say that. You know, we're, every organization nowadays tends to be running pretty lean, mm-hmm. um, and people tend to be doing more than one job, basically. So sure. there's a lot of lot of potential for burnout in organizations. I think that's where the opportunity to to kind of have some time for introspection and reflection is important as well in organizations. All of this talk about creativity prompted me to remember a great video clip that I once saw of one of my favorite comic actors, John Cleese, renowned for his sketch comedy writing and performance with the troupe Monty Python as well as his work on the big screen in A Fish Called Wanda, Fierce Creatures, Clockwise, and multiple James Bond, Harry Potter, and Shrek films. Cleese is perhaps a little less well-known for his thoughts on management, but Cleese actually does lecture about management. A couple of my Drucker Institute colleagues were once even introduced to Cleese at a small cocktail reception here at Claremont Graduate University by Charles Handy, the great management writer who himself is known as the Peter Drucker of Britain. My colleagues were admiring Cleese's fancy red boutonniere when they suddenly realized that it was actually a tortellini that he had plucked off the hors d'oeuvres tray and stuck in his lapel. Here now is John Cleese with advice about how to foster the right conditions to help almost any person or organization be creative. There is one, just one other thing that I can say about creativity. There are certain conditions which do make it more likely that you'll get into the open mode and that something creative will occur. More likely. You can't guarantee anything will occur. You might sit around for hours, as I did last Tuesday, and nothing. Zilch. Bupkis. Not a sausage. Nevertheless, I I can at least tell you how to get yourselves into the open mode. You need five things. One, space. Two, time. Three, time. Four, confidence. And five, a 22-inch waist. Sorry, my mind was wandering. I'm getting into the open mode too quickly. Instead of a 22-inch waist, read humor. I do beg your pardon. Okay, let's take space first. 
You can't become playful and therefore creative if you're under your usual pressures, because to cope with them, you've got to be in the closed mode, right? So you have to create some space for yourself away from those demands. And that means sealing yourself off. You must make a quiet space for yourself where you will be undisturbed. Next, time. It's not enough to create space. You have to create your space for a specific period of time. You have to know that your space will last until exactly, say, 3.30, and that at that moment your normal life will start again. And it's only by having a specific moment when your space starts and an equally specific moment when your space stops that you can seal yourself off from the everyday closed mode in which we all habitually operate. And I'd never realized how vital this was until I read a historical study of play by a Dutch historian called Johan Huizinga. And in it he says, play is distinct from ordinary life, both as to locality and duration. This is its main characteristic, its secludedness, its limitedness. Play begins and then at a certain moment it is over. Otherwise, it's not play. So, combining the first two factors, we create an oasis of quiet for ourselves by setting boundaries of space and of time. Now, creativity can happen. Because play is possible when we're separate from everyday life. So, you've arranged to take no calls, you've closed your door, you've sat down somewhere comfortable, you've taken a couple of deep breaths, and if you're anything like me, after you've pondered some problem that you want to turn into an opportunity for about 90 seconds, you find yourself thinking, oh, I forgot, I've, I've got to call Jim. Oh, and I must tell Tina that I need the report on Wednesday and not Thursday, which means I must move my lunch with Joe and damn, I haven't called St. Paul's about getting Joe's daughter an interview and I must pop out this afternoon to get Will's birthday present and those plants need watering and none of my pencils are sharpened and right, I've got too much to do, so I'm going to start by sorting out my paper clips and then I shall make 27 phone calls and I'll do some thinking tomorrow when I've got everything out of the way. Because, as we all know, it's easier to do trivial things that are urgent than it is to do important things that are not urgent, like thinking. And it's also easier to do little things we know we can do than to start on big things that we're not so sure about. So, when I say create an oasis of quiet, know that when you have, your mind will pretty soon start racing again but you're not going to take that race seriously. You just sit there for a bit, tolerating the racing and the slight anxiety that comes with that. And after a time, your mind will quieten down again. Now, because it takes some time for your mind to quieten down, it's absolutely no use arranging a space-time oasis lasting 30 minutes, because just as you're getting quieter and getting into the open mode, you'll have to stop, and that is very deeply frustrating. So you must allow yourself a good chunk of time. I'd suggest about an hour and a half. Then after you've gotten to the open mode, you'll have about an hour left for something to happen. 
if you're lucky. But don't put a whole morning aside. My experience is that after about an hour and a half, you need a break. So it's far better to do an hour and a half now and then an hour and a half next Thursday and maybe an hour and a half week after that than to fix one four and a half hour session now. And there's another reason for that. And that's factor number three. Time. Yes, and I know we've just done time, but that was half of creating our oasis. Now I'm going to tell you about how to use the oasis that you've created. Why do you still need time? Well, let me tell you a story. I was always intrigued that one of my Monty Python colleagues, who seemed to be, to me, more talented than I was, did never produce scripts as original as mine. And I watched for some time, and then I began to see why. If he was faced with a problem, and fairly soon saw a solution, he was inclined to take it. Even though, I think, he knew the solution was not very original. Whereas if I was in the same situation, although I was sorely tempted to take the easy way out and finish by five o'clock, I just couldn't. I'd sit there with the problem for another hour and a quarter and by sticking at it would, in the end, almost always come up with something more original. It was that simple. My work was more creative than his simply because I was prepared to stick with the problem longer. So imagine my excitement when I found that this was exactly what McKinnon found in his research. He discovered that the most creative professionals always played with the problem for much longer before they tried to resolve it. Because they were prepared to tolerate that slight discomfort and anxiety that we all experience when we haven't solved a problem. You know what I mean? If we have a problem, and we, we need to solve it. Until we do, we feel inside us a kind of internal agitation, a tension or uncertainty that makes us just plain uncomfortable. And we want to get rid of that discomfort. So in order to do so, we take a decision. Not because we're sure it's the best decision, but because taking it will make us feel better. Well, the most creative people have learned to tolerate that discomfort for much longer. And so, just because they put in more pondering time, their solutions are more creative. Now, the people I find it hardest to be creative with are people who need all the time to project an image of themselves as decisive. And who feel that to create this image, they need to decide everything very quickly and with a great show of confidence. Well, this behavior, I suggest sincerely, is the most effective way of strangling creativity at birth. But please note, I'm not arguing against real decisiveness. I'm 100% in favor of taking a decision when it has to be taken, and then sticking to it while it's being implemented. What I'm suggesting to you is that before you take a decision, you should always ask yourself the question, when does this decision have to be taken? And having answered that, you defer the decision until then in order to give yourself maximum pondering time which will lead you to the most creative solution and if while you're pondering somebody accuses you of indecision say look baby cakes 
I don't have to decide till Tuesday, and I'm not chickening out of my creative discomfort by taking a snap decision before then. That's too easy. So, to summarize, the third factor that facilitates creativity is time. Giving your mind as long as possible to come up with something original. Now, the next factor, number four, is confidence. When you're in your space-time oasis, getting into the open mode, nothing will stop you being creative so effectively as the fear of making a mistake. Now, if you think about play, you'll see why. True play is experiment. What happens if I do this? What would happen if we did that? What if? The very essence of playfulness is an openness to anything that may happen. A feeling that whatever happens, it's okay. So you cannot be playful if you're frightened that moving in some direction will be wrong. Something you shouldn't have done. I mean, you're either free to play or you're not. As Alan Watts puts it, you can't be spontaneous within reason. So, you've got to risk saying things that are silly and illogical and wrong, and the best way to get the confidence to do that is to know that while you're being creative, nothing is wrong. There's no such thing as a mistake, and any drivel may lead to the breakthrough. And now, the last fact, the fifth, humor. Well, I happen to think the main evolutionary significance of humor is that it gets us from the closed mode to the open mode quicker than anything else. I think we all know that laughter brings relaxation and that humor makes us playful, yet how many times have important discussions been held where really original and creative ideas were desperately needed to solve important problems, but where humor was taboo because the subject being discussed was so serious. This attitude seems to me to stem from a very basic misunderstanding of the difference between serious and solemn. Now, I suggest to you that a, a group of us could be sitting around after dinner discussing matters that were extremely serious, like the education of our children, or our marriages, or the meaning of life, and I'm not talking about the film, and we could be laughing, and that would not make what we were discussing one bit less serious. Solemnity, on the other hand, I mean, I don't know what it's for. I mean, what is the point of it? The two most beautiful memorial services that I've ever attended both had a lot of humor, and it somehow freed us all and made the services inspiring and cathartic. But solemnity, it serves pomposity, and the self-important always know at some, some level of their consciousness that their egotism is going to be punctured by humor. That's why they see it as a threat, and so dishonestly pretend that their deficiency makes their views more substantial when it only makes them feel bigger. <laughs> now, humor is an essential part of spontaneity, an essential part of playfulness. 
an essential part of the creativity that we need to solve problems, no matter how serious they may be. So, when you set up a space-time oasis, giggle all you want. And there, ladies and gentlemen, are the five factors which you can arrange to make your lives more creative. Space, time, time, confidence, and Lord Geoffrey Archer. <laughs> Unfortunately, Cleese was not an actual guest of mine, so I did not have the pleasure of asking him, as I did everyone else new to the show, my favorite question. The one that Peter Drucker's teacher asked him when he was a schoolboy, and that he went on to ask his own students and consulting clients. What do you want to be remembered for? Here's what those joining me had to say. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, if, if I knew that, I would, have such, I would have so much more focus in my life, but then maybe I'd miss some stuff on the periphery. <laughs> no, I, I think overall, so I have a very interesting uh, path that I've taken into where I'm at now. I, honestly, not on like Drucker or the artist. I, I've got a lot of work to do to even begin to catch up to where he was uh, at, at my age. But I, I began uh, kind of my professional career as a, as a writer and almost wanting to be a novelist, et cetera. And then I learned be, even in business, we need powerful storytelling. And some of the people that I look up to the most are the people that can tell stories of what's going on in current companies or what needs to happen. And so really, I would love to be known as somebody that facilitated the transfer of good ideas by taking empirical research, taking proven concepts, and being able to communicate them through stories, because stories are how we're, how we're hardwired to receive things. So if I can be known as somebody that facilitated that transfer of good ideas, that would, that would just be amazing. I think for me, you know, it's very funny, because the answer to that question would vary over my career. What I would have said at 30, when I was a young academic trying to make an impact on the field, it was all about my literature, my, my impact, my writing. And, you know, as the career sort of unfolded, um, I think that the notion would be, you know, I'd like to think my legacy, if, if I could have one, would be related to the students that I was fortunate to teach and that I had some impact on their lives in some way, shape, or form. Not all the students, but some students felt like it was a really kind of important part of their life to have sat, on, sat in on one of my classes and, you know, learn something about the nature of management. So I think my hope, my dream would be that a handful of students sort of went through the experience and said, you know, that really shaped my thinking in my life and how it is that I think about things. So that's where I think I'm, where I'm, I'm leaning at this point. But I think the fascinating thing is that it, it is, I think at various career stages, the answer might be different. To be very honest with you, um, I think that um, the, the old um, saying, which sounds rather trite, which is that your, your human assets are the most critical assets you have, um, to allow your to, to really create an environment um, at Mattel, where I work now, but create an environment within the organization I'm in, which allows people to realize really their full potential, um, to be able to retain your best talent, um, um, you know, to, to give them the opportunity to optimize um, their careers while they're with you, and to only ever lose talent um, when you absolutely do not have an opportunity for them. So being able to create a really robust and rich environment for employees, um, so they wouldn't, so they don't go elsewhere, so they don't look outside, you know, because there's a huge investment made in in your in your you know, the human talent that you have, and you want to be able to get your return on that investment. It sounds it sounds like I'm being terribly terribly <laughs> now um, <laughs> financially focused, but that's not the issue at all. It's really it's really creating an environment where people feel passionate about what they do and and their um, and they're, you know, working on 
on, um, you know, really the work that, that creates high value for them. That was David Burkus, Bernie Jaworski, and Grace MacArthur. And now let's hear from Rick Wartzman, the Drucker Institute's executive director, with his bi-weekly column, The Drucker Difference, now appearing on Time.com. At a lunch in the early 90s, Peter Drucker asked Doug Rao, who would go on to become the president of Trader Joe's, the following question. Do you know the number one reason why companies fail? The answer Rao thought to himself was self-evident, because expenses have exceeded revenue. But Drucker, he figured, was going for something a little more fine-spun. So he replied, No, Peter, why? Navel-gazing, Drucker exclaimed, before elaborating. They become myopic. Often the worst thing that can happen to a company is success. This insight, which Rao told me some time ago became one of his guiding principles in running Trader Joe's, leaped to mind recently as I read a piece in McKinsey Quarterly by a former Toyota executive named Daryl Sturdivant. In his article, Sturdivant discusses the problems that companies tend to face when introducing lean thinking, which at Toyota revolves around two main pillars, Kaizen, the philosophy of continuous improvement, and giving responsibility and accountability to everyone in the organization, especially line workers. One reason that so many executives hit serious snags in implementing lean, he says, is that they have a propensity to talk about the good things they're doing, rather than focus on applying resources to the things that aren't what they want them to be. Take a large manufacturer that Sturdivant visited. It had adapted an evaluation tool from Toyota, measuring safety, quality, cost, and human development. The scores from each category were then averaged together on a scale from zero to five. When the executive showing Sturdivant around boasted that his unit had scored a perfect five, the Toyota veteran was stunned. On what dimension, Sturdivant asked him. Overall, his host answered, five was the average. Sturdivant explained that the best score he'd ever seen at Toyota was a 3.2, and this didn't last long. What happens in Toyota's culture, he says, is that as soon as you start making a lot of progress toward a goal, the goal is changed and the carrot is moved. It's a deep part of the culture to create new challenges constantly and not to rest when you meet old ones. In other words, when Toyota refers to continuous improvement, it really means continuous. So did Drucker, who taught that setting a concrete annual improvement objective for everything an organization does internally and externally is the key to ultimately achieving significant breakthroughs. The aim of Kaizen, he wrote in Managing in a Time of Great Change, is to improve a product or service so that it becomes a truly different product or service in two or three years' time. And yet Drucker, whose teachings had a tremendous influence on Toyota, wasn't suggesting that executives ignore their successes. The trick is to leverage them rather than get lulled to sleep by them. The first and usually the best opportunity for successful change is to exploit one's own successes and to build on them, Drucker wrote in Management Challenges for the 21st Century. Sony, for one, emerged as a consumer electronics giant in the early 1980s this way. During this period, Drucker pointed out, almost every new product the company brought to market could be traced back to a single offering, the tape recorder. One success of a Sony product based on the tape recorder, Drucker wrote, was used to design the next product, and then another product based on the success of that product, and so on. No step was a big one, and not all of them were successful, Drucker added, but by exploiting success, 
each of these additional new products carried very little risk, so that even when it did not succeed, there was not too much damage. And enough of them were successful to make Sony into one of the world's largest, but also one of the world's most consistently successful enterprises. What Sony didn't do, at least during its heyday, was sit still. It was never content. It kept moving the carrot. The same can be said of many of today's best managed corporations, like Apple and Google and Amazon, which are forever pushing themselves to new places. I always kind of see how I want things to be better, and I'm generally not happy with how things are, or the level of service that we're providing for people, or the quality of the teams that we've built. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg told Bloomberg Businessweek, a perpetual state of dissatisfaction that has led him to step back and write at least one thank you note every day, a means of acknowledging that many good things are in fact happening at the company. Still, you can bet that in Zuckerberg's case, courtesy won't give way to complacency. Like many of today's savviest corporate leaders, he clearly understands that success, by its nature, is ephemeral. Success always outdates the very behavior that achieved it, Drucker wrote in Management, Tasks, Responsibilities, Practices. It always creates new realities. It always creates, above all, its own different problems. Only the fairy story ends, they lived happily ever after. The stories on the business pages never do. A version of that essay first appeared in The Drucker Difference, a bi-weekly column for Time.com. Thank you for listening to Drucker on the Dial. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter at DruckerInst, D-R-U-C-K-E-R-I-N-S-T, for all the very latest here at the Institute. As always, you can follow our ongoing conversation about leadership and management at our daily blog, The Drucker Exchange, at T-H-E-D-X dot O-R-G, thedx.org. <laughs>